Well, I am happy to be here this morning. We're in John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, go to John chapter number 4 this morning. And uh, this morning we're talking about the faith of a father, the faith of a father. And uh, when I think of, of all the stewardships entrusted to us in life. I mean, uh, there's so much, everything belongs to God. Uh, but I know that as parents, we're entrusted with little ones, and uh, that's the most precious stewardship of all, is to teach and train up little children. God, help us doing that. The faith of a father this morning, we're in John chapter 4. We're going to be looking from verse 43 till uh, the end of the chapter, chapter number 4. I remember uh, moving to Tallahassee a few years back. It's been a while, but uh, when, I, when I moved here, uh, my backyard was covered with like vines and stuff. And so I went out and, and wanted to clean my backyard. And uh, at the end of the day, <clears throat> I realized that I was covered in poison ivy from head to toe. And, uh, and it was a desperate situation for me. Uh, I, was, I tried to go to bed that night, and I couldn't. And I realized that uh, I had really messed up today. And so I didn't know what to do, so I called one of the members at that time. He's not here anymore. And, uh, but uh, I called a member at that time that I thought he knew everything about outdoors. And uh, he told me, he said, hey, look, man, the best thing you can do is go to a sycamore tree. Uh, they got a sycamore tree down there at Buck Lake Elementary School. Go down there to that school and get you some sycamore leaves and boil it up and make you some tea and rub it on yourself. And uh, so in the middle of the night that night, I remember uh, going down to Buck Lake Elementary School and stealing sycamore leaves off the tree and thinking, you know, I'm going to get arrested for stealing sycamore leaves. Local pastor gets fired for... Uh, uh, responding to a desperate situation. But uh, I was desperate. I would do anything. It didn't work. So if you're wondering, it doesn't work. But anyways, I tried it, and uh, I just had to endure my time. But desperate situations, we face them in a lot of different ways. When you're talking about desperation, what we do in those moments, and sometimes we have uh, all find ourselves there, sometimes uh, obviously more serious, much more serious, than others. Sometimes it's relational desperation. Some people might even be here this morning feeling like I'm in the middle of a desperate situation in my relationship. And that's serious business. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the middle of a physical desperate situation. There are some people that are in the midst of struggles today physically and 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 how do we respond where do we go what do we do uh, but then I want to talk today about spiritual desperation you know a lot of times what we do is we can see the physical obviously and, and we're aware we're, we're aware of the relational and sometimes if we're not careful we don't even realize that there is a spiritual desperation that we are surrounded with and God help us, because if we don't see it, we don't get desperate. And this morning, it's my prayer that God would open our eyes to the desperate needs all around us. The Bible says in Matthew chapter number 7, verses number 13 and following, the Bible says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. The gate is wide, and many... <clears throat> Leads to destruction, there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few 
who find it. And when you think about this world in which we live, there are people perishing all around us. Some of them are our family, some of them are our friends, some of them are our co-workers. And the question is, does the church, is the church really recognizing we're living life in the midst of desperate people all around us? And what are we doing about the desperate situation that's plaguing us? Are we crying out to God on behalf of others? Are we hungry for a move of God? The Bible says in Psalm 42, verse number one, as the deer pants for the brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Is there a time in our life, do we recognize that, man, I need God? A lot of times what we do at church is we're just content with the right kind of music and the right kind of lights and the right kind of stories and the right kind of this and the right kind of that, when in the fact of the matter is, man, we're desperate. We need God to move, else we're just wasting time. God, we need you today in this place. And God, I need you in my home. I need you in my city. I need you in my workplace. We're desperate for you because we are a people without hope without you. Desperate for God. Desperate for the spiritual needs around us. Unfortunately, most of us, many of us, never even realize the desperate situation in which we are living Today we're talking about a father who recognizes the desperate situation, the desperate condition of his own child. And the Bible says in John chapter number 4, verses 43 and following, the Bible says, After the two days he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him, begging him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, man, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. Now as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And this morning, we're just going to unfold four different scenes as this story unfolds for us. First of all, you have the narration that's happening. Jesus, has, he's, he's on his journey. He's on his tour, you may say. And, uh, and he had just come out of Samaria. He had been in Samaria. And while he was there in Samaria, in fact, if you read Scripture, you read chapter 4, the beginning, uh, it contains a lengthy story about Jesus meeting a woman at the well. Uh, he's walking, and he said he had to go to Samaria. You remember the story? He had to go to Samaria. And he gets to the well, and there was a woman there at the 
well that Jesus has an encounter with. And while he's encountering her, he's talking to her, and there's a confrontation about this sinful issue that's happening. And all of a sudden, she recognizes who Jesus is, and her life has radically changed. In fact, the Bible says that she left there and started telling people around Samaria. And if you look in chapter 4, and you back up to verse number 39, says that many, many of the Samaritans, many people in Samaria heard the word, heard the testimony of this lady. I've met Jesus, and they were saved as a result of her testimony. And then Jesus hung out for a couple more days speaking, and many more came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the town of Samaria. Now they're leaving from the town of Samaria, and the Bible says that he's on his way over to Galilee. And on his way, we have this narration that's interesting because when you look at this story, it says, after two days, he went from there into Galilee. Verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And so it's interesting when you're looking at this portion of Scripture, because it's like, why did he say that in verse 44? What was going on? Why would Jesus make a statement like that? They were coming out. They were excited about what had happened, the response of the people in Samaria. And then Jesus says, hey, a prophet uh, is, does not have any honor in his hometown. And the reason for that is because on the way, as they were traveling, they were going from Samaria to Galilee, and they had to come by Nazareth. And Nazareth was where Jesus Christ was raised as a little boy. And it was in Nazareth, when you read Scripture, back in Mark chapter number 6, watch what happens in this town of Nazareth. As he's walking, he just makes reference. Well, Mark tells us what happens in this little town. The Bible says in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, about Jesus Christ. Let me back up to verse number 4. You're going to have 5 and 6 on the screen. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And watch what the Bible says in verse number 5. And he, who? Jesus. And Jesus, the one who is omnipotent, the one who is all-powerful. Jesus could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. What was happening in this town of Nazareth? When you read this story and you look at what was going on, these people uh, were very familiar with who Jesus was. They saw him grow up. They knew his brothers and sisters. They knew his background. They knew who his daddy was, earthly, Joseph wasn't really his father, but they knew Joseph, they knew Mary, they knew everything about him, and they looked at him and said, man, there's nothing special about him. What happened in the town of Nazareth was that familiarity, they, they became so familiar with Jesus that they overlooked who he really was, and they didn't trust him for anything. They didn't believe him for anything because he's just common. There's nothing special about him. There's nothing special about him. And so, like the old saying goes, when you hear the saying, you ever heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Familiarity breeds contempt? That's exactly what happened in this town of Nazareth. Why was it? In fact, the fact of the matter is, when you're talking about Jesus Christ, because it's an interesting little verse there. I didn't want to get sidetracked too long, but it is an interesting verse because he is omnipotent. But listen, you can... <clears throat> You can shackle omnipotence only to the extent that the omnipotent one permits it. 
You can only shackle them. In other words, if Jesus Christ so chose, he can override and overrule anybody at any time with anything because he is omnipotent. But the fact of the matter is he chooses not to do that. He chooses not to function in such a way. And so therefore, because of their unbelief, because they believed him for nothing, expected nothing, anticipated nothing, they got nothing. And here's the deal. You don't have to be born in Nazareth to be familiar with the things of Jesus Christ to the extent that familiarity breeds contempt. We begin to treat Jesus and the things of God with contempt. What do you mean by that? You may ask the question. Well, here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of folks that, man, any, any Sunday, of the, any Sunday, Sunday comes and goes, and it's just another day of the week. Maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I won't go to church. And if I do go to church, I'm really not expecting anything. I'm not anticipating anything. Why? Because I know all the stories. I know all the songs. I've been there and done that, and there's nothing really special about what's happening. And as a result, you know what happens? You miss out on miracles. We believe him for nothing. So Jesus is walking with these people. And he makes a statement as he walks by Nazareth. For he himself testified, a prophet has no honor, his own country. He went on to Galilee. And when he arrived at Galilee, he's met with desperation. The Bible says in verse number 46 and following, verse 46 and following, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now Capernaum, about 20 miles away from where Jesus was at this time. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him. He was begging him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. The desperate situation. It's interesting when you look at the miracles of Jesus Christ, both of them taking place here in Cana, the first of two that we're referring to this morning. Uh, the first one came at the cry of a mother, if you remember the story. Uh, his own mother said, hey, they've run out of wine. We need you to do something here. And, uh, and, and Jesus did, in fact, ultimately respond there with the first miracle. And here we have the cry of a father, and Jesus responds to the cry of a father. We don't know anything about this man. He was an anonymous man, but we do know that he was a royal official. He was a king's Man. Now, what does that mean? That simply means this. He was serving the king in that day. And when you're talking about the king of that day, Herod Antipas was the king, son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas was a wicked dude. If you remember the story of who he was, he took his own brother's wife. Herod Antipas took his own brother's wife, Herodias, and they went off and had an affair. And then he was confronted in his sinful state by John the Baptist, right? You remember the story? John the Baptist confronts and he's just preaching. And so what happened is all of a sudden Herod Antipas now has John the Baptist beheaded. And so it's interesting because Jesus didn't even go there. He didn't discuss the allegiance. This man came to him and said, Hey, I need you and my family. My family needs you. Jesus didn't say, Well, let me just talk to you for a minute about your allegiance with this wicked dude. What are you doing in that state? You say, Why, why, why are you bringing that up? Because I wonder how many times 
people in this world are in desperate situations and really have needs along the way, and rather than meeting the desperate situation and meeting the need of their lostness, we get sidetracked into discussions about things that really ultimately, at the end of the day, they're important, but they're not the main thing. You ever had that happen in a gospel conversation? With someone, you ever had that happen where someone needs the gospel and rather than speaking about the gospel, we get sidetracked into other discussions about other topics that really don't matter that much. This man said, hey, I need Jesus. But when you're talking about the way that he approached Jesus, it's so important because he approached him with great humility. You know, he could have, again, as a king's official, he could have ordered that Jesus makes his way to my son, but he didn't. He came in great humility, and God desires us to come in great humility to him. James chapter 4, and in verse number 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. A lot of times what we do is we're so prideful, we never humble ourselves and come to God like we ought to come to him. God, help me, give me a humble heart, not just as individuals, but even as a church body. We need to humble ourselves before God Almighty, recognizing that we desperately need Him. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. We need Him. And God, help us to reach out in humility. In fact, the Bible says over in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, my people who are called by my name humble themselves humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. To come to Christ in all humility. God, help us come in the right manner to humble ourselves. And, and, and to make it our first, by the way, our first response rather than our last resort. A lot of times in our pride we try to take care of everything ourselves I know what's best for me. I know what's best for my family. I know what's best for others around me. When the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ is best. He is the answer. He will give you what you need. When we come to him in humility at first, how many times do we waste time by waiting and trying to fix things on our own? Not only is it good to come to him in humility it's good to come to him at all to come to jesus christ convinced convinced at the end of the day that i need you more than anything else in this world and 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 the question has to be asked for all of us to answer and you can only answer for yourself but are are, are do you recognize him as my ultimate and only need that i need jesus christ more than anything else in this world that people need jesus more than anything else in this world we may say that with our lips but how many times do we get so worked up over other things we feel like man the answer to the nation is what happens in the white house when the fact of the matter is i'm very interested in what happens in the white house but it's not the white house that's going to change our land it's the church house it's when god and his people moves in power and in might that's our hope our hope's not in our government our hope's not in our laws our hope is in the power of god working in the hearts of his people and his people are not desperate for him anymore god break our hearts 
Let us see what you see. Verse 48. So Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, <clears throat> simply don't believe. <clears throat> Too many times what we do is we just simply want the blessings from God. We want the comforts from God. We want the peace from God. But we don't want God himself. A lot of times what happens is, is it breaks my heart because you have opportunity to speak with people and get to know people on an individual basis. And so many times, I can't tell you how many times it has happened where you have family who their family's relations are on the rocks and we're desperate, we need, we need fixing. And they come, and we meet, and, and, and we pray, and all of a sudden the family gets fixed, and the next thing you know, they're back out. It's like, I just need to fix. And, 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 and as parents, what we've got to recognize is that, man, my children need Jesus more than anything else. These people recognize that Jesus can fix things, and Jesus is a miracle worker but what we've got to understand is Jesus is God Almighty. Verse 49, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. What he's saying is, hey, there's a desperate situation. I don't have time for discussion. I don't have time for debate. All I know is you are the answer, and I need you desperately. And I think about where the church is again, and I don't know that we see the desperate needs around us. Physically, it's easy to see desperate needs around us. Imagine with me for a second if you were on a boat and you were traveling across the Gulf, the Atlantic, and you're traveling out there, and all of a sudden you see people bobbing in the water, dog paddling. Uh, you would see it and say, man, this is a desperate situation. These people are desperate, and they're crying out, help me, help me. How many of us would say, hey, let's speed up a little bit, get away from the cries of these people? How many of us would say, oh, man, we have a, a, a donut float, and we have a life vest. Uh, uh, this is, we, we wouldn't have a discussion about how these work. How you think they're supposed to work. We would say, hey, this is what we've got for you. We will do anything and everything to save you. And I think about where the church is today. And there are people all around us, all around us, who are simply dog paddling. And one of these days, their life's going to give out. One of these days, it's going to stop, and they're going to perish and go to a place called hell forever and forever and forever. And I think the church is more content with sitting around and discussing things like soteriology and how people really do get saved rather than sharing the gospel and seeing them get saved. We're talking about defining the elect and defining those Matters that really don't matter to a dying man. They just need to know there's hope in Jesus Christ. And we have the answer. We have the opportunity. We have the privilege to share with them. And we, rather than share with them, we're content with what's happening. We're so fixated on what's going on inside the walls of the church, man. We'd rather argue over the songs that we sing rather than reach selves for the gospel with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, help us. God, give us a desperation for those people around us. God, help us. And the only way we're going to do that is if we see the needs. And then when we see the needs, we must be willing to walk the walk and talk the talk and bring them to Jesus or bring Jesus to them. Either way, they need Jesus Christ. 
God help us. This father recognized the need. He went to the right person. He went in the right way. Why? Because they needed Jesus Christ. And God help us understand that our witness is impacted when we start talking about reaching people. And it begins in our own family. This is talking about a family relationship. It begins in our own family. But if we're talking about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got to understand that our testimony does matter. What we do does matter. I can't live like the world all week long. I can't drink what the world drinks. I can't watch what the world watches and expect dying people to say, I want what you've got, because you don't have anything different than the world if I'm walking in the same way the world is walking. I lose my saltiness. Y'all all right this morning? God help me be salty. You're the salt of the world, man. There ought to be something different and distinct about you. When people look at you, what do they see? Do they see Jesus in me? God, help me to bring them to Jesus. Verses 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. <clears throat> It's interesting. We have an affirmation coming. <clears throat> what happened to him? Uh, we don't want to, you know, make no mistake about it that Jesus Christ is the one that healed your son. A lot of times what we do is we're, we pray for healing, man. We pray for healing. Any and every healing that takes place comes from God Almighty. And a lot of times if we're not careful, we can ascribe uh, the healing to somebody else, to something else. Well, it was the doctors. Well, it was the medicine. Well, it was this and it was that. When the ultimately, at the end of the day, it was Jesus Christ. When you're looking at this story, I tell you what's interesting is when you have people that come to Scripture and they read stories like this after studying this this week, and there's some that want to argue over the timing. Are we talking about Roman time or are we talking about Jewish time? And they spend all their time trying to figure out what timetable was when the fact of the matter is that's not the point of the story. The point of the story that no matter what time you ascribe it to, it was the same time that Jesus Christ said, your son's healed. He healed his son. And the man believed it. Man, he is God Almighty. And God changed him in a moment, totally and completely. He heard the word, and he was changed. <clears throat> the Bible says... Your son lives, and he himself believed, verse 53, not only himself, but his whole household believed. And this morning, I just want to encourage you and ask you the question, have you ever been born again? Have you ever been saved? I'm not talking about being religious and coming to church because that doesn't save anybody. I'm talking about a point in time when you hear the word of God, when you hear the voice, when you hear the voice of God speak to your heart. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into this world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, if we get what we deserve, every person in this place deserves condemnation. Every one of us. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And a lot of times we look at others and say, man, how could they do that? I know. 
Because all of us have fallen flesh that we were born with. And so the question is, how do you deal with the fallen nature? How do you deal with it? You cannot fix it yourself. You can't get better. You can't get good enough to go to heaven. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. And so God Almighty demonstrated his great love for you and for me. And that while we were still sinners, he's not going to wait till you fix yourself, get cleaned up, because you can't. But while we were sinners, he died on a cross for you and for me. Not only did he die on the cross, but three days later, he was raised from the dead. He's alive and desires an intimate, loving relationship with you. Ever been a time in your life when you recognized, I need Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. I want to live the rest of my days for him. And you ask him to forgive you, to come into your heart. And what happens in that moment is you get, you get born again. I don't know if that's good grammar, but that's what you get. A new, a new life. And it begins with you. And then when it begins, he says, I want to use you to impact this world. And fathers have an unbelievable opportunity to influence this world in which we live. Everybody has opportunity to influence. In fact, if you read through, again, this chapter, you'll find a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman went, and the Bible says many, many believed. Why? Because she said, let me tell you about Jesus who I met. Let me tell you about Jesus who I met, that God wants to use you. He used a Samaritan woman. <clears throat> he used his fathers along the way. When you're talking about the faith of a father and how powerful that is, research has been done. And here's what the research says. NAM did this research, North American Mission Board, and they said that when we reach children, if we reach a child by themselves, 3.5% of their families will follow suit. If we reach children, 3.5% of their children will follow suit. If we reach a mother, if we reach a mother, Nam says their research will show that 17% of families will follow suit. If we reach fathers, if we reach fathers, 93% of families will follow suit. The influence of a father, the faith of a father. You know there's nearly 100 million men father's age in the United States. 70 million claim no church affiliation whatsoever. Of the 70 million men across our nation that claim no church affiliation Today, 85% of that number grew up in church. We have a huge vacuum happening among our men in this nation. And today, I'm just simply throwing it out there to anybody and everybody, but especially to fathers. God, are we being faithful in the role that you have entrusted to us? He gave us our children. He gave us our wives. He gave us everything that we have today. Are we being faithful with the role that he's entrusted to us? 
God help me. And that really begins with my own personal walk with Jesus Christ. It's not about coming home and preaching to the family. It's about showing my family Jesus in me. God help us to live the life that's ours entrusted to us. Would you do me a favor this morning and join me for a time of prayer? And as we pray, I'm just going to encourage you a couple of things along the way. Hey, this morning, if you're here today, and many of us, many of us, we're blessed to have fathers who lived out their faith in the home. Hey, would you take a minute this morning and thank God for that blessing? But again, let me ask the question for all of us this morning. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? He's a good father. (laughs) Ever been a time in your life when you called on him? I need you today. If not, I want to invite you to call on his name today. You call on his name today. Maybe you're here today and you're a dad and you say, Man, I've struggled along the way. And I really haven't been very intentional in my home. Hey, I don't care how old your children are. I don't care how old you are. You still have influence. You still have influence. God, help us to humble ourselves before Jesus. Humble ourselves before our families. Leverage the influence that God's given to us. Oh God, thank you for this morning. I thank you for this day. I thank you for loving us like you do. And God, today I just pray that you'd search our hearts, Father. God, entrusting us with children... Some of our children never called on your name. They're in desperate situation. Open our eyes to the desperate situation of our own household. Oh God, we need you. We need you. Father, I thank you for this morning. And I pray, God, that you just search our hearts and have your way in this place. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.